In this episode, neurology resident Lucas Horta interviews Dr. David Greer, a stroke specialist. They talk on the topic of ESIS or embolic stroke of undetermined source. A reminder that the purpose of this podcast is for education and not for direct medical advice. We hope you enjoy. Today we have the honor and the pleasure to talk to Dr. Greer. Thanks for having the time to talk to us. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, to say that I'm excited about this would be a, a gross understatement. So today we'll talk a little bit about ESIS, or embolic stroke of undetermined source. Um, I think would be probably a good idea to de- try to define what that is. Yeah, so uh, ESIS is a term that's come out in the last decade or so, maybe a little bit less. It's uh, Again, it stands for embolic stroke of undetermined source. How does that differentiate from what we call a cryptogenic stroke. Think of it as kind of like a newer and maybe more appropriate term. Um, The patients with ESIS have had a a thorough workup without a clear underlying cause. Uh, And there's a greater reliance with ESIS on the radiographic pattern that it looks like an embolic stroke that uh, such as having like a distal cortical, maybe a wedge shaped stroke or especially multiple strokes in different vascular distributions, the kind of stuff that we all think looks embolic, but we don't find a classic source like atrial fibrillation or valvular disease or something like that. Um, Cryptogenic stroke in distinction also includes categories of patients with multiple potential etiologies or who've had an incomplete workup. And that's not the case with ESIS. ESIS is really what you think of as this looks embolic, but after a a good workup, we we don't see the source. Mm, I see. I see. So uh, just uh, to make sure, um, what exactly do you have in mind when you say a thorough workup? How thorough would you go usually? Yeah. So it, it depends a little bit on the age of the patient, but the, the most important things to think about are obviously clearing the vessels, making sure that there's not, not large vessel disease that could be attributing to it. Um, and often we think of at least 50% stenosis of a large vessel but sometimes there might be a patient with an ulcerated lesion uh, in a large vessel that might be less than 50% that you might incriminate, but that's usually not the case. And then you, you think about uh, obviously a, a cardioembolic workup, and that would include transthoracic echo uh, in everybody, including a bubble study looking for a PFO. And then in select patients, thinking about a, a TEE, uh, transesophageal echo, especially in younger patients, I usually use a cutoff of 60. Uh, and then everybody gets cardiac monitoring. And I would say uh, at least 30 days, I'm a big fan of doing longer. And, you know, some studies have shown a 10 to 20% detection rate for atrial fibrillation with longer monitoring, some of them even up to 30% when monitored for up to three years. And then and finally, thinking about in some patients, a hypercoagulable workup or vasculitis workup, um, tox screen, uh, certainly that, that should be considered in certain populations and an infectious workup also because you can have things like syphilis or HIV, just to name a couple that can be associated with a, a source of uh, stroke uh, in, in patients as well. So I, 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 if I call that the bare minimum, it sounds like a lot. Um, but uh, in, a, in an older patient above 60, you're not going to do some of those things necessarily. 
but in a younger person, you certainly pull out all the stops and make sure there isn't some other um, uh, potential source. I see. I see. So I, I get the sense that there will be a little bit of a picky and choosing according to the patient, but at least that's kind of the lay of the land. I don't know if this is a question that we can answer in general terms, but what's the roughly the percentage of strokes that end up being labeled eases? Yeah, so depending on which study you look at, people say somewhere around 15 to 20 percent. Uh, and of those, they have about a four to five percent annual risk of recurrence. Um, and they're typically younger patients, often with milder strokes for whatever reason. And that's a little bit counterintuitive because many times an embolic stroke uh, can be uh, uh, can occlude a large vessel uh, or a medium-sized vessel, but given that they're younger, they they typically make better recoveries also. So maybe that factors into it as well. I see. Um, what's the standard current management for for these patients? Yeah, most patients are on antiplatelet therapy, and uh, about ninety percent. And so that's that's been the standard of care. And there are studies that we'll, we'll probably talk about that have looked at anticoagulation, um, but there, you know, that approach is as yet unproven. Now, there are some people that might leap straight to doing anticoagulation for these patients, and maybe that comprises the other 10%, but most, most of these patients are on antiplatelet therapy. Yeah, that's the question. I was, uh, I was, I was anxious to, to hear your thoughts. Uh, how uh, I think the respect eases and navigate eases were the trials that tried anticoagulation, and they were both negative, I believe. Um, so what's the, your general impression about these trials and their results? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're interesting, right? So they, uh, they, they studied an oral anticoagulant uh, with a, a DOAC, uh, a direct oral anticoagulant. One of them used rivaroxaban, and the other one used abigatran. And both compared versus uh, antiplatelet therapy, monotherapy with aspirin. And surprisingly, neither one showed a benefit. And I was so excited when they announced these trials because I was like, oh, this is perfect. The perfect population, the right kind of drug. It's safer and easier to use in Coumadin. And I'm so glad they're studying this. And boy, if I were a betting person, which thankfully I'm not, uh, I would have thought that they would have been positive. But they weren't. There was no benefit of being on an oral anticoagulant over uh, being on antiplatelet therapy. Although, if you look at the subgroup analyses, there uh, was potentially a benefit in older patients, uh, which was defined as greater than 75 years old, which makes me happy. <laughs> they <laughs> so far, they're away from being older. <laughs> and that's probably because they had more um, AFib in that population, which we know responds better uh, to uh, uh, anticoagulation. Uh, in Navigatesis, there was a significant difference in the rates of major and intracranial bleeding, but not with respectesis, which I guess was good. And maybe that's due to different formulations uh, uh, or rather doses of aspirin uh, because it, they were uh, they were different. They used enteric-coated aspirin and navigatesis and non-enteric-coated and respectesis. And there was more bleeding in, in navigate, which is really unclear why. I mean, no, no other studies have shown that, that issue with enteric-coated aspirin. So, who knows? Uh, very confusing. Um, there was also a signal that there might have been a benefit if they followed the patients out for longer, a benefit in favor of anticoagulation. 
And so that's maybe one of the major flaws of those studies is that they didn't follow patients for longer, but there were, there were other things that may have factored in to make the studies negative as well. I had a similar response. Of course, I wasn't exactly looking forward to them because when I started reading about this, they were already resulted, but I was very puzzled. On a different uh, topic, most of the, the population with thesis is treated with aspirin as a secondary preventive agent. Um, when I was reading about this, I didn't get a clear sense of what the 10% there not on aspirin would be. On what situation would these patients be given dual antiplatelet agent? Yeah, so there are numerous studies looking at dual antiplatelet therapy versus monotherapy that all show a potential benefit, but every one of them also shows an increased risk of bleeding. Uh, so you, you know that you're going to have to outweigh the, the benefit uh, in a given population. And before clopidogrel went off patent, they were studying this like crazy, trying to find additional indications. And, and really, it's, it's, it's very challenging. And so you, your questions are like, should somebody be on a, uh, a higher dose of aspirin or should they be on dual antiplatelet therapy? And can you figure out which patients there are, especially in the ESIS population that might benefit and so if you were able to actually say which patients had aspirin resistance and might benefit from a higher dose or might benefit from dual antiplatelet therapy and for how long, I think you, you've, got to, you've got to really answer those questions carefully. I think where we've settled is it's okay to do dual antiplatelet therapy for the short, short term. And we you know, currently do it for three months in patients who have uh, uh, intracranial atheromatous disease, for example, and only 21 days in patients with TIA, is the longer you're on it, the you're clearly going to have a higher bleeding risk, and you're probably not going to get much benefit over the long term uh, that would outweigh the risk. So that's kind of how I approach this. Is if I'm going to do it, I'll do it for some confined period of time, and in specific populations. But um, for ESIS, it's really it's really unclear. I see. I see. And and then. As, a, as another possible etiology that you mentioned already, uh, the patients with patent uh, Furman ovale or PFO, um, they are kind of in this bucket of ease, I believe. Um, how do you go about linking the etiology of the stroke with the PFO? Yeah, well, PFO is very complicated, as you know, um, but it's probably one of the ones that's more likely to respond to oral anticoagulant. Uh, so remember, you can get either a paradoxical embolus uh, due to the PFO being a conduit from the legs or, or pelvic veins uh, and thus it goes through it, or you can have in situ thrombosis uh, where the, the clot forms within the PFO, either of which might be more responsive to oral anticoagulation, but that's why you do the studies. So, you know, and then closure, I mean, closure has been shown particularly in younger patients to complicate the ability to do a decent study here because most patients below the age of 60 uh, with an embolic appearing stroke and a PFO, they, they get closed nowadays. So really the only population that you could study um, ethically, in my opinion, would be older patients uh, with a PFO without a DVT, uh, and then you might be able to randomize them to uh, a DOAC or, or antiplatelet therapy. But that, that would that would take a new trial to answer that. And every time we think we know the answer, <laughs> you do a <laughs> trial and you're not necessarily right. Interesting. Um, and I think the, the other thing that I've, that I've heard as a 
big topic within um, the other cause of these is, uh, is atrial cardiomyopathy. And I believe the Arcadia trial uh, is trying to investigate this. Um, and if you could uh, shed some light on what that, what's the thought behind that trial and what's trying to accomplish. Yeah, no, this is a really great trial. I'm, I'm so glad they're doing this. It's, it's not necessarily that a patient has to have AFib uh, to have a risk. Uh, it, it's really becoming more and more apparent that it could be disease of the atrium itself. And so the, the Arcadia trial is again taking ESIS patients, but they have to have either echo criteria with an enlarged uh, left atrium or EKG criteria uh, with uh, specific atriopathy findings on EKG or lab criteria where they're using a, uh, a serum uh, BNP uh, to suggest that the patient has an atriopathy and then randomizing them to, uh, in this study, it's a pixaban versus aspirin. And I think it's a, a really brilliant study and designed by really one, one of the leaders in the field, which is uh, Uman Kamel from um, Cornell. And it's a very intelligent and good study. I'm very glad that we're participating in it here because it's, I think, uh, the right way to go to really define the population that is most likely to benefit. I mean, this is what happens in clinical trials. You take a big you know, bucket of different types of patients and then you wean it down based on subgroup analyses, et cetera, and additional hypotheses to say, okay, what's, who's really going to benefit? So this is the stage we're at now, which I think is a very good one. Oh, that sounds awesome. That sounds awesome. Very exciting. Um, yeah, that, that was like, super, super helpful. Thank you so much. Um, do you have any concluding thoughts on the topic before we finish? The only thing is I would ask people to keep an open mind about this disease because I think we're still learning a lot um, and we're learning rapidly. So I think it's it's an area of active study. We should have a lot of really good data in the years to come. So stay tuned. Awesome. Thank you very much, Dr. Greer, for your time and your very insightful thoughts. Thank you for inviting me. I had a great time.